Good morning. This morning we're going to look at the subject matter of Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only way to God. And so our passage this morning begins with Jesus saying to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Now that word troubled is a great word that applies to this particular situation. Far be it from Jesus to always share the perfect word, right? But um, this word troubled literally means to kind of stir up or, or agitate. Let me give you maybe an example that we can kind of uh, understand what kind of anxiety is happening here with the apostles. Imagine your life is calm like water in a bowl. Okay, that's seldom true of our lives. But imagine your life is calm like water in a bowl and you receive some really distressing news. And then of course your thoughts and emotions come like electric mixers. And they're dropped into the water and they're agitating the water and the water is going everywhere. That's what Jesus is talking about when he tells the apostles not to be troubled from the heart. So why would the apostles' hearts be troubled? Well, three things for sure were happening. First of all, Jesus announced that he would be betrayed by one of them. Plus, if you think about that, for a moment, I don't know what kind of dynamic this would have done to the emotions, but for a moment, Satan was in the room. Because it says that Judas, you know, received the, you know, the, the cup from Jesus or the bread from Jesus, and then Satan entered him. As it says in the previous chapter in verses 26 and 27, it says, Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. So just for a brief moment, because Jesus then says, go do what you do and do it quickly. Okay, and so a brief moment there, Satan was in that room. But not only that, I think a second reason why they would be agitated or be troubled is Peter's faith was about to be shattered. Jesus says in verses 37 and 38 of the previous chapter, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And we know Peter's famous for having a shoe or foot-shaped mouth. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, how many of you grew up with or near chickens? Anyone? How many of you maybe have gone on a mission trip where chickens were there? Okay, our Rhode Island mission trip, we had chickens in the property right next to the church. Now, what is something you can almost count on when chickens are nearby, say, Sometimes even as early as 3.30 in the morning, but generally at least by 6 in the morning. Over and over and over and over again. You know, and I, I can remember taking a mission trip to Haiti one time. And, um, you know, we're in this stone hut up in the mountain village and that sort of thing. You know, hardly electricity, that sort of thing. And like at 2.30 in the morning, they started. And it felt like a wave of noise. You could hear them off in the distance starting, you know, 
you know, kind of squealing and everything like that. And it's almost like it was waving coming towards you. And pretty soon the, the roosters that were very much nearby were crowing and crowing, crowing for hours on end. So as sure as the rooster would crow, which we know if we've been in that environment is an absolute certainty, Peter would deny the Lord three times, which had to have a negative effect on the other apostles. I mean, despite Peter's uh, occasional little goof-ups with his comments and things like that, he was one of the top three. He was the one that they kind of looked to to be bold and, and, and those kinds of things as well. Outside looking in, Peter was the guy who would do anything for Jesus. The apostles kind of had to wonder in their minds if Peter's devotion for Jesus was about to crash, what about us? You know, our guy, the guy we're kind of looking to, you know, Peter, you know, and expect him to run, you know, rush the gates of hell in the water pistol or something like that, is about to deny the Lord. Why wouldn't that happen to us as well? The third reason I think that they are troubled is Jesus had brought up the subject that he would be leaving. And he even says that he's going to a place where they cannot follow. In verse 33 again in chapter 13, Jesus says, little children, yet a little while while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Think about that. For three years, give or take, these apostles had given up everything to follow Jesus. They heard the most wonderful teaching while with Jesus. They saw many miracles performed. They saw demons defeated. They saw lives changed. And now it was about to end. I mean, other than Judas, the rest of the apostles could not even imagine anything more wonderful than to be in the room with Jesus. And now he's telling them, I'm leaving and I'm going somewhere where you cannot follow. So that rightly troubled them. So what was the solution to their trouble? Well, the answer is faith. Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus essentially is saying here, you trust in God, trust also in me. And this is in the imperative, which basically means he's commanding them to trust in him. And on a side note, Jesus is again linking himself with the Father by saying, think about this, just as God is a suitable object of faith, so am I. That is a very bold thing to say unless it's true. And it is. So we could, in a sense, go through the book of John or other gospels and look at specific things Jesus said that the apostles could believe in that would kind of calm them down, give them kind of a, a, a relaxer in this moment of tension, this moment where he could, they could really get worked up. But Jesus in this passage right here gives them a whopper of a promise. He says in verses two and three, he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now, I hate to burst the bubbles of anyone who thinks they're going to get waterfront property in heaven, right? Some of you remember those lyrics in that great hymn, Victory in Jesus. 
Remember, I heard about a mansion, right? He has built for me in glory. And I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea. You know what that says to me? That says, I'm going to have my mansion by the crystal sea, and I'm going to have a gold driveway. And that's not what Jesus is really referring to here. He says, I prepare a place for you. In my house are many rooms. So he literally means staying places in this passage. And it really fits the description really in today's vernacular of a condo more than it does a mansion. But this promise for all intents and purposes should have obliterated any reason they had for being troubled. Jesus tells Peter, you will deny me three times. But then he says, I go and prepare a place for you. And he notice he did not say, except for you, Peter. I'm going to make a place for all your friends here, not Judas. Judas wasn't even in the room by then. And I'm not going to make a place for you, Peter. No, he didn't say that. And so Jesus might have said, or Peter might have thought in his mind, well, hey, here's this Savior. He's going to prepare a place for us. Perhaps after I deny him, he will pursue reconciliation with me. Jesus said he was leaving, but he was coming back. Jesus said where he was going, they cannot go there, but in coming back, he will take them there to be with him forever in the Father's house. This had to have been a very encouraging thing to know when they were not going to be eternally deserted. But they had to take Jesus at his word. They had to put their trust in him and in what he said. But it was obvious that they still didn't get it. Jesus says in verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. But Thomas replies, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Didn't Jesus just tell them where he was going to prepare a place for them? But apparently Thomas wanted an address. Because that's what he said. We, I mean, which is a logical question. If I said go to Frog Swallow, Oklahoma, which is an actual place, I'm from Oklahoma, but if, you, if I say go to Frog Swallow, Oklahoma, we're going to say, you know, we're going to start punching it up in Google Maps. We need to know where to go in order how to get there. So we can kind of understand what Thomas is going, what he's saying here, but it was still kind of a boneheaded thing to say. I can almost see Peter going, I'm glad I'm not the only one. They didn't know the place, so how would they know the way? So Jesus capitalizes on their ignorance and educates them on how he is the way to the Father's house. Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I believe this is kind of the central verse, the central statement in this passage. And so we're going to focus on this statement for the rest of the message. So point number two is this. What does it mean that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Since Jesus was already discussing the way to where he was going in verse 4, it is important to read verse 6 like the way 
kind of being the principal theme of what Jesus is talking about, and the truth and the life operating as support statements for the way. Because he's talking about, you know, you know the way, I am going here, you know the way, that sort of thing. So how do the truth and the life help us understand that Jesus is the way to the Father? Well, here's letter number A. Jesus is the way to God because he is the truth of God. John 5, 19 says, so Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. And so Jesus is saying here that I do nothing, I say nothing unless the father has given it to me. John 8, 28 says, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, Then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Every word out of the mouth of Jesus was basically God's gracious self-disclosure. As Jesus said in verse 10 of our passage this morning, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. In talking about Jesus, John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Now, some quick explanation. When it says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the side of the Father, that sounds a little schizophrenic, but we're talking about God the Father and God the Son sitting next to the, next to the Father, and God the Son makes the Father known to us. And that word, make him known, interestingly enough, we get our word exegesis from that word. You might have heard the term an exegetical sermon, which is a sermon that draws out, that's what that definition of that word means, draws out the original meaning of the passage. The opposite of that term would be a word called eisegesis, which means you're adding something to it. So unfortunately, there are eisegetical sermons where pastors are up here saying, well, the Bible says this, and they're inserting their own meaning into the passage. Whereas an exegesis or an exegetical sermon is drawing out what the original intent and the message of the passage is. The beautiful thing about this is Jesus, for all intents and purposes, exegetes the true God. He draws out and reveals who God is. Now, if you're a first-time guest this morning, we're glad you're here. You probably heard that I'm not the senior pastor. That would be Pastor Troy Hamilton. Troy will be back with us next week, and then he'll be in the pulpit in a couple of weeks. So when you come back next week, when, not if, so when you come back next week, I want you to know that you will not be able to miss Troy Hamilton. Here's why. First of all, he's really short. He is. He's guy's about four foot ten. Okay? Also, he has shoulder-length bleach blonde hair. Okay, so so pretty obvious, you know, if you see a guy walking around here and shoulder-length bleach blonde hair, that's the guy. And he's also very shy. Probably the shyest man on the planet. I mean, This guy is scared of his shadow. So be careful when you first approach him. He'll kind of do this, he'll kind of twinge a little bit, you know. Don't worry, he'll warm up to you eventually. It takes about two hours. 
But you go up and have a conversation with him and eventually, you know, maybe shake your hand or something like that. Now, what I have done here is I have eisegeted Troy Hamilton. He's not short. He does not have long hair, period, or blonde hair, bleached or otherwise. It's kind of bleached, but it's a little white on the sides. I've been noticing that on the poor guy. But anyway, um, he is uh, one of the most outgoing people on the planet. And I don't think, and I'm sure he has it somewhere deep inside of him, maybe in his pinky, but I don't think the guy's afraid of anything. But the false description I gave would have caused you to kind of come next week and go, where on earth is this guy? You come next week looking around, and you're like, can anyone introduce me to Pastor Troy Hamilton? And, and, oh, sure, come on over here. And they bring you to this guy who's not short, not blonde, not scared. You kind of go, hmm, I think I was given false information. Jesus exegetes God with his words and life in such a way that if you were looking for God, you would have no problem finding him. In order to know God, then, you must go to Jesus. Letter number B, Jesus is the way to God because he is the life of God. Jesus is the way to God because he is the life of God. John 5, 26 says, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And this is why Jesus was able to raise the dead. As the Father tells life where to go, so Jesus tells life where to go. Dead person, Jesus says, life, go over there and make that dead person alive. Because the Son has life in himself, he can give eternal life to anyone who would trust or believe in him. That's what Jesus is communicating to Martha in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Another way to restate that statement that Jesus says, though he die, yet shall he live, is to say, when he dies, he will be with Jesus in the Father's house, living eternally. That's what eternal life is, living eternally with the one who is sustaining you from the very life that is within himself. Folks, if you do not believe in or trust in the one who has life within himself, then you are not on the way to the Father's house. You're not. So when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. He is saying, if you want to get to the Father, you have to go through the Son, because you cannot know the Father unless you learn Him from the Son. He is the truth of God, and you cannot be with the Father unless you have the Son, who is the resurrection. And therefore, he will raise you from the dead, and he is the life that will sustain you for all eternity. We don't show up in heaven and all of a sudden have some sort of nuclear energy inside of us that is sustaining us. No, it is always our being sustained by the life that is in him. 
We will always be reliant on Him. We will always be in need of trusting in Him. We don't get to heaven and reach perfection and all of a sudden not need anything any longer. No, we will always be reliant on Him because He is the sustainer of all things. So now that we have an understanding of what Jesus meant by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, what are some imperatives or what are some musts that we can draw from this? So that's point number three, the imperatives for what that means. Here are some things. Letter number A, know the Son. It is obvious that Jesus is saying that in order to know the Father, you must know Him. Verses 7 through 9, Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do not know Him and have, excuse me, from now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And I can almost see Peter going, yes, I'm not the only one again. You know, Philip says another boneheaded thing. And, you, and, and, and there is a tinge in verse 9. Jesus' reply to Philip is a, is a little bit sad. He's, he's got some sorrow going on here. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you that you, do not, that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father, or whoever has seen me has seen the Father, how can you say, show us the Father? And folks, there's such a strong emphasis here on knowing the Son that this is just a primary, important kind of thing that's going on here. That, that even those people who say, yeah, I know the Son. Yeah, I'm a Christian. This emphasis on knowing the Son so much ought to cause every person, whether they've been a Greek and Hebrew scholar and have been devoted to the Lord for decades upon decades and that sort of thing, even to the the brand new, spanking new believer that just got saved five minutes ago, all people in between should ask the question, do I know him enough? Because this passage really also warns us not to be a Philip. Being with Jesus for three years, day in and day out, should have prevented Philip from saying such a boneheaded thing. Especially since Jesus had already been saying, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. So for those of us who say we know the Son, is there room to deepen and broaden that knowledge of Him? And the answer is yes. If to know the Son is to know the Father, let's dedicate our lives to knowing everything we can know about the Son. Letter number B is this, trust in the Son. Not only are we to know the Son, but we are to trust in the Son. Notice Jesus says, I am the way. Rather than, let me point you to a way. Although in many other passages, Jesus gives instructions on how to live, when it comes to knowing the Father and arriving in the Father's house, it is all about faith. Jesus says, I am the truth. 
And therefore, Jesus is calling us to believe he is truth incarnate. That to know the Father is to look to the Son as the exegesis of God. That is not a do thing. That is a trust thing. That is a, I'm never going to understand God. I need to look to the Son thing. Jesus says, I am the life. He is calling us to be sustained by him. That requires us to rely on him, to be the recipients of eternal life. And Jesus also says, I am the way. And in my study, I read a great little sonnet that said this, I am the way to God. I did not come to light a path to blaze a trail that you may simply follow me in my tracks pursue my shadow like a prize that's cheaply won. My life reveals the life of God, the sum of all that he is and does. So how can you, the sons of night, look on me and construe my way as just the road for you to run? My path takes in Gethsemane, the cross, and stark rejection draped in agony. My way to God embraces utmost loss. Your way to God is not my way, but me. Each other path is dismal swamp and fraud. I stand alone. I am the way to God. We are to live a life of trusting in him, believing in him, and being sustained by him. Letter number C. Be used by the Son. Jesus said in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. (coughs) First of all, notice that if you are believing in him, you are also doing the works that he is doing. There is throughout the scriptures a direct connection between faith and obedience. If you trust in him, you will obey him. If you obey him, you will be doing the works that he did. Namely, you will be devoting your life and words to bringing glory to the Father. And even more amazing, Jesus says that these works that we do are greater than the works that he did. Jesus did not mean greater works in power, I believe. I think he meant greater works in extent. It's hard to imagine anyone being able to perform works or signs greater than raising people from the dead or turning water into wine or restoring withered limbs. But we know the works are greater in extent because Jesus says, because I am going to the Father, That's kind of the preface for why we will do greater works. Jesus' time on earth in the flesh was limited. (coughs) The church would become witnesses to all the world through the Holy Spirit, whereas Jesus, while on earth, was on a pretty specific geographic area, and a very small one at that. (coughs) Excuse me. They would see the church, they would see more converts changed lives than Jesus did in his ministry on earth, and the church would bring greater glory to God over time through the work of the ministry. 
But before we get the big hit, we're like, hey, hey, way to go church, and pat each other on the back and kind of stick our chest out and kind of strut around like a peacock or a rooster in this case. But anyway, um, but, but before we get the big head, notice what Jesus says in verses 13 and 14. <coughs> Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, we already know that generally the prosperity practitioners of the prosper, or the practitioners of the prosperity gospel take these verses out of context in order to pad their pockets. A lot of P's in that statement. But these verses fit the overall context of this passage we've been studying. And notice here, Jesus is talking about these greater works that the church will be doing. And the way these greater works are accomplished is the church asks God for great things in order that the Father may be glorified in the Son, and here it is, the Son will do it. Therefore, there's no room for pride here. There's no room for saying, hey, I did something greater than Jesus today. These greater works are essentially not done by us, but are done by Jesus working through us. As D.A. Carson says, the request is offered in Jesus' name, and he is the one who grants the request. This demonstrates that the contrast in verse 12 is not finally between Jesus' works and his disciples' works, but between the works of Jesus that he himself performed during the days in his flesh while on earth and the works that he performed through his disciples after his death and exaltation. Which is, why, which is basically why I said be used by the Son rather than serve the Son. There's no doubt that we ought to accomplish great things. That's what Jesus says. That's one of the indicators of that you know the Son and that you know the Father is that you are doing His works. That we are bringing glory to a great and mighty God, but we are only vessels who walk in the truth, being sustained by the life, trusting in the way, and being used by him to do great things. Let me give that explanation one more time. We are only vessels who walk in the truth, being sustained by the life, excuse me, trusting in the way, being used by him to do great things. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, and we're going to land it with this statement, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for sending your Son as the way and the truth and the life. Thank you, Lord, that we, we can know you when we know the Son. And so I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, send your Holy Spirit to bring conviction to their hearts. 
and may they repent and turn away from their sin, seeking your forgiveness and finding forgiveness of sin and great mercy and help from you. But Lord, may we all leave this place seeing the knowledge gap and even the experiential gap that we have in truly knowing the Son. Lord, may we look at it and examine our lives and see where we do not know the Son, and may we strive to know the Son so that we can know the Father. Thank you that you are the truth. You are the living visual of God Almighty. Thank you that you are the life, Lord, that you sustain us, Lord. You give us eternal life so that we might one day be in your house. We might be in the Father's house with you for all eternity. Lord, just like the apostles, we come to the conclusion that there can't be anything more wonderful than to be in the room with you, and one day we will be. Thank you for that precious, precious promise. And thank you, Lord, that you are the way. Thank you that you are not the way in a sense of we are to, in lockstep, attempt to try to do everything as perfectly as you did, Lord, but we are to look at what you did as how we can be reconciled to God. And therefore, you stand alone as the only way to God. Lord, strengthen our faith and trust in you as a result of this statement. Deepen our walk and relationship with you. And Lord, may we, in knowing you, and trusting in you, being sustained by you, may we be used by you. Lord, may we be open, readily available, trusting in you in such a way that you, through your Holy Spirit, in and through us, cause us to lead someone to Christ cause us to donate and give of our finances to various ministries that are reaching other people for Christ, Lord. Help us to have the primary and perhaps the only goal of our lives to be bringing glory to the Father with, our every, with, our, with all of our speech, Lord, with all of our actions, with all of our might. May we be used by you. I pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.